Well, let's resume in, in getting to open our Bibles back up. We are working through the Gospel of John, and today we're making our way all the way to the second chapter. We're in John chapter 2, and while you are turning there, uh, I want to offer a personal word of apology to our our church family, or anyone who received an email that looked like that came from me. Is there, did anyone get an email? Okay, you see all those hands, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, sometime this Thursday afternoon, into the evening, into Friday morning, I discovered that someone had, um, had got into my email and uh, hacked it and was sending out all sorts of scam emails uh, imploring you to go out and purchase some vast amounts of gift cards and, and scratch them off and, and submit them back. And uh, I am really sorry for that. <laughs> that wasn't something I had sent out, uh, but I know that many of you got that, and I'm grateful for the text and phone calls and emails and say, hey, is this, is this coming from you? I assure you it, it wasn't. Um, it, it has gotten me thinking about the world that we live in today, that there would be someone that would exploit uh, the love that a pastor has for a family and well as a family has for their pastor and try to make some money on that. Um, as, as best I know, as fast as we could, we changed the password on that email. And I, I can't promise that it won't happen again, right? Because that's, that's just how scams are. And maybe next month it'll be you sending me one. Uh, and so we're just going to have to be uh, for fervent and and just checking with one another. And thank you for all of those of you that checked with me. Well, today we're going to look at the first 12 verses here of John chapter 2 as we get to read of Jesus's first miracle as recorded here in the gospel of John. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Then they said to them, now draw some out to take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now it had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This morning's message is on the topic of joy, and so I would like to pray for that. Father, as we look at these words here, we see a very joyous occasion of which people are gathering to celebrate a marriage. And it's a picture, I think, of 
how Jesus is now on the scene and he has come to offer an abundance of joy. Lord, as we look at these words today, I pray that we would be able to see them, read them, understand them, and then say, how does my life compare with this joy? For those of us who've been experiencing it to the overflow, may there be a gratitude, a thankfulness that that echoes throughout this day. Thank you for the joy that you have given to me. For others that are saying, I I lack this, may there be some evaluation and and just the how is it that I might experience more of this joy in my life. And for those who have never trusted you, have been forgiven of their sins, have never tasted this joy, I pray that you would use the words of this passage of Scripture to usher into that new life for that person here today. In Jesus' name, amen. What is it that brings you joy? Is it when you've had your sins forgiven? Is it when you've seen answer to prayer? Is it when you've been in the Word and and the Word has been in you and you are seeing God at work in you? Perhaps it's a, a loved one that you've observed and you're like, that person is really growing in their faith. Or maybe it's a day of rest or several days of rest when you're able just to be replenished. You're like, I needed that. My, my joy has been restored. As a father now of some sons, the way my joy is experienced is a little bit different. Oftentimes, I, I look at them and, and when they're joyful and when they're happy, that overflows onto me. I can think of a few occasions this past week where I was home with them and, and I was seeing them enjoy themselves and having a great time and just seeing them have a great time made me joyful and, and satisfied as well. Just yesterday we were driving uh, towards a football game and, and a few of the boys were in the middle seat and they were just cutting up and laughing and even though all I really wanted was a nice quiet ride in the countryside... <laughs> I couldn't help but say, I'm, I'm grateful for the, for the joy, the happiness that they are experiencing right now. Here in John chapter 2, we see a joyous occasion. People are gathering for a wedding. Now, I've had the privilege of presiding over a number of weddings, and, and I like to do this. A part of it, I think there's something sinister within me, is I like to people see, see people squirm a bit, because most of us are not formal, right? We're very informal, but weddings most of the time are formal. And so you have this beautiful bride that gets to be Cinderella for the day, this magnificent flowing dress with her hair done and makeup professionally applied as well as her nails. And, and then there is this guy, this, that she is, this groom that's all dressed up as well and and he kind of looks like a monkey in that suit because he's so, it's so unnatural for him to wear this. And he's up there dripping sweat with all of his buddies. And they're like, this looks so awkward. This looks so, so weird. And then you have the rehearsal night, which is often that Thursday. And usually there's some tension that goes off there, maybe between mother-in-laws. And, and then you have the service itself. And you have the, you know, the, the little girls that are coming up and delivering flowers. And it's not unusual for them, one of them, to get about halfway up the aisle and look around and say, I'm out, you know, and just go off to the mom. Or, or the man is supposed to be responsible for the ring. 
And, and it's not unusual for the exchange for there to be a fumble or something like that. And so there's all this tension because it's just so formal. It's not things that we are used to. And if you get out of the wedding service alive, who likes to stand in front of people in public? It's not unusual to see people faint or whatever. If you get out of there alive, then there's always a reception. And something can happen during the reception, right? Particularly if you're trying to do it on a shoestring budget. And who wants, I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Well, maybe you run out of food. And and that's exactly what we see here in the second chapter of John. Now, I will remind you that this wedding in this culture is a little bit different than ours. There's like four different phases of it. The first is this. There's this arrangement made between the young man and the bride's family. The young man goes over and he pays a price, a little price to purchase this woman. He pays pays the, the woman's father. And they enter into a covenant. And that covenant is binding. In fact, if they break it off, there's a word for that. It's called divorce. The the second phase is 12 months. That young man will go back to his father's home and he'll prepare that house for his bride. And so he's trying to get that house ready. He's trying to get the finances in order so that in that day, that glorious day, bring that, that woman back to the house. So the third phase is maybe 12 months later. He goes unannounced with his buddies and they announce to the bride that they are there. And there's this wonderful parade that takes place where he grabs the bride or ushers the bride, maybe a better way of saying it. And they escort their way around their community and there's the prominent men there that are offering their words of blessing on this marriage. And then the fourth phase is when that bride and that groom make their way to his father's house. They consummate that marriage and then they have a reception. Now the reception is just not a Saturday evening. That reception is typically seven days. It's a, it's a full week party. And that's what we see here in this passage. So let's, let's just work through these verses. This outline, I think, is very straightforward. In fact, maybe when you learned how to study the Bible, you had these three headings. The first is observation. The second is explanation. And the third is application. So let's first look at the observation, and we're just going to run our way through these verses. Verse 1 says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The third day, we want to go back to what we covered last week, and that is when, when Jesus came to Galilee, he found Philip, and Philip found Nathaniel. So three days after that, Jesus found himself in this little community called Cana which is about eight or nine miles north of Nazareth. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, as you read that carefully, you're like, hey, someone's missing, right? And who is that? Joseph. We don't see anything more about Joseph after the Christmas story. Most Bible teachers believe that that's because he must have died. Verse 2 tells us, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Unlike John the Baptist, that was a recluse, that he was by himself, not in the public, Jesus is right in the community. Verse 3 tells us, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. 
Now we might read those words there in verse 3, when the wine ran out and say, what's the big deal? Particularly in the last year and a half, stuff has ran out. You go to the shelves and they're bare. Maybe you go to the restaurant and that thing you are really looking forward to having served to you is not available. But during this culture, and I'd go back to what Zach had said at the intro, is that hospitality was critical. There was a certain etiquette that you made great precautions not to run out. You would have made sure that you had enough food and drink for everyone there. In fact, I learned this by multiple sources this week, that it was the groom's responsibility to provide this food and drink for all the wedding party, and this was so critical that the bridal party could have actually sued the groom's family running out of wine. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. It's, it's apple pie season, and if you get invited over to someone's house and they run out of apple pie, you're going to sue them. That don't work. It, it was only during this Jewish custom for the wedding. But this was serious. And then it says here, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. You wonder, if, as, she, as she said this, did she wink? As if to say, now's the time. What I really want you to do now is, is identify who you really are. Are you telling me that Mary knew who Jesus was? Certainly. You remember the Christmas story when the angel Gabriel came to her and announced to her that she would be having this child. And and she said to the angel, how is it possible that I could have this child? I've never been with a man. In John 1.35, it says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore, also the holy thing which shall be born in thee shall be called the Son of God. It was announced to her that she would give birth to the Son of God. In chapter 2 of Luke, the shepherds were out in the field one day, and the angel came to them and says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The shepherds would come and tell that to Mary. Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, this prophet blessed Jesus and said, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again in many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. And then do you remember when Jesus was a little boy and his family left him in the temple? They went on and they said, Hey, you got him? No, you got him. And they went back and they found the little boy. And they said, Where have you been? And that little boy, Jesus says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. And so she looks to Jesus and says, hey, they have no wine. There was, there was one other thing that, that might have propelled her to say, Jesus, now is the time to announce who you are. And that is this. You see, there was a stigma attached to Jesus and Mary and the family ever since he was born. It comes out in Luke, uh, rather, John chapter 8, verse 41, where Jesus is in conversation with a few men. And when they say to Jesus, hey, we are not illegitimate children. There was a reputation around Jesus 
that he was born illegitimately. And I imagine for Mary, it would have been pretty good for her to get removed from that cloud. And so she says to Jesus, hey, they're out of wine. And wink, wink, maybe now's the time for you to identify who you are. Now, here's what we see in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, boys or young men or men, if you called your mother woman, how would that go for you? I mean, if my mom called me on my birthday and says, Chad, I'm just calling to wish you a happy birthday, and I said, what do you want, woman? So there's a little cultural gap here for us. This word woman here is the equivalent of the word ma'am. In fact, we see this word of being used of the woman at the well, the woman at the well. But it's also used when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he looks down at the writer of this gospel, John, and he looks at his mother, Mary, and he says to her, woman, behold your son. I'm going to die. John, I need you to take care of my mother. It's the same word. It is a word, maybe not the most intimate but it still is a word that is polite and respectful. So he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? I think what we have here in verse 4 is a turning point in his relationship with his mother. He is now all about his father's business. The timing is not exactly right. He says that in verse 4, my hour has not yet come. This phrase, my hour, is beginning here, but it's going to be carried throughout the Gospel of John. My hour, the hour has not yet come, and now the hour is at hand. The word hour is in reference to the time in which Jesus will be crucified. Would it be handed over and give up his life to forgive you of your sins? So then we see in verse 5, His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. The word servant here is not the word doulos, which is the word slave. It's the word diakonos, where we get our word for deacon. Very likely, this is a small little community, Cana. These are a bunch of volunteers. It'd be very similar to the weddings that we have around here. Hey, I can't hire this really fancy catering business. So what we're going to do is we're going to have volunteers pull this thing together And so she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, moms, if you ever want to give your sons or daughters some good advice, I don't think you can improve upon that right there. Do whatever Jesus tells you. In fact, I was thinking that right there I need to set aside for Mother's Day. That could be a great Mother's Day message right there. You know, we live in a community that that values Mary more than we do. In fact, there are people that actually pray to Mary. And there's statues of Mary in yards or in people's homes. And and I'm here to tell you that she was a godly woman, but she also was a woman. 
And we saw that, didn't we not, when, when it was announced to her that she would give birth to this child in this wonderful song that she goes into in Luke chapter 1. She says in verses 46, 47, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She refers to God as her Savior. Now, why would you need a Savior unless you had sin? So Mary was a sinner like you and I. And she needed to be saved from the sin. I had a, this great professor in school, Dr. Sanchez. And he spent a lot of time witnessing to Catholics. And one of the things he taught us in that class was to say, here's a wonderful passage here in John chapter 2. When you're visiting with that loved one that, that is attached to the Catholic Church, show them what it says right here. And Mary said, whatever he says, do. And you can show them that with a nice Catholic Bible and say, now what does Jesus say to do? And you could follow the thread of the gospel in his ministry. So whatever he says, you go ahead and do that. And moms, you know what that might mean? It could be one day that that little boy or that little girl says, I believe Jesus is calling me on the other side of the world to share the gospel over there. You know what that means? You might not see your grandkids, but once every couple of years. Would you say, whatever he says, do it? This is the advice that Mary gives to the servants. Now it says here in verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. We would read in other places of the Scriptures, like Mark chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, that there was a ceremonial ritual that the Jews uh, were so superior to the Gentiles that they would do this ceremonial washing if they were ever out in the community, and they'd come in and they would clean themselves, where there were six massive water jars made of stone, not earthenware, because that could be contaminant, but they were so massive that they were 20 to 30 gallons. Now, those of you who like math, do the math for me. Six times 20 is what? 120. Or six times 30 is what? 180, right? So can we cut it in the middle and say 150 gallons? And, and verse 7 says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim well, that, I'm really grateful for that little phrase there, filled them up to the brim. Why is that significant? Because they would have just kept it a few inches from filling it up. It could have been accused of someone coming by and, and filling that water with just a little bit of wine that was strong, and it changed everything, so it tasted like it was wine. But it, but it was filled to the very brim. Verse 8 says, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, it now become wine. And he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. So you have the master of the ceremonies, the MC. And he said to them, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So the first miracle is this 150 gallons of water being turned into sweet wine, the best 
tasting wine. Verse 11 says, this is the first of his signs. You know, there are some ridiculous books out there called the Gospel of Thomas. You've probably heard of that. These are books that have been argued that these were written around the same time as Jesus or the Gospels. And so the Gospel of Thomas, this false book, we should not see it as authoritative, has stories of which Jesus was a little boy and he took these clay pigeons and he breathed air into them and they flew away. There's another story of Jesus coming upon a, a boy as Jesus was a boy and cursing that boy and he died and then he would go and, and raise him to life. I think there's even a story there of a man with an axe and he was swinging the axe and hurt his foot and, and Jesus healed that man's foot. All these took place as Jesus was a boy according to the Gospel of Thomas. But it actually contradicts what we see here in the Gospel of John, verse 11, when it says this, the first of his signs. So whenever we see a contradiction there, we always stand on what the Scriptures have to say. Jesus did this in Cana, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So that's, that's just an overview. That's some observations Now let's consider some explanations. Number one, Cana. Jesus is from God and for the people. His first miracle is in this small, obscure town where there are ordinary people. You might think if you're really going to launch a ministry, you ought to do it big. Do it in the capital city. Do it with flash where A lot of people can see, and you can quickly draw a crowd. But this first miracle, as you see, is actually done in secret. It's more quiet and intimate. This morning, you may feel overlooked, but Jesus sees you. And he is still doing wonders in normal people's lives today. He takes hopeless lives that are dry and thirsty and provides for them satisfaction and joy. The second thing, the second explanation that we see here is in marriage. Jesus approves and celebrates marriage. I think it's noteworthy that his first miracle is actually at a wedding. Jesus is concerned about your marriage. Jesus values your family. When one attends a wedding, they approve of this man and this woman getting married. They are endorsing it. And Jesus still does wonders in marriages today. He still does wonders in your family today. He can turn a man or a young person's hard heart and he can soften it towards their wife, towards their husband, towards their mom, towards their dad, towards their siblings. He's still working wonders in our families today, healing hurts and establishing oneness. I'm grateful for Zach and Kelly and them opening their home to provide a a marriage small group on Sunday evenings to see that and display. The third explanation we see here is the signs. The purpose of Jesus' miracles is to prove that he is God 
that we would place our trust in him. Did you see that that's what took place? At this time, there were these five disciples, as we see that they accompanied him there in verse 2. And those five, we saw last week, was Andrew. There was the author of the Gospel of John, John. Andrew's brother, Cephas, or Peter. And then we saw in verses 43 through 45, Nathaniel and Philip. So there are those five. But when we come to the end of this miracle in verse 11, it says, and his disciples believed in him. When we see a work of God, our faith is deeper, more trust in him. And that is the whole purpose of these signs. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. It is interesting that in the Gospel of Mark, according to my count yesterday, there are 18 miracles. According to Mark, uh, there are 15 miracles. According to the Gospel of Luke, there are eight miracles in their writings. But in the Gospel of John, there are only seven. And Jesus, rather John, the writer of this Gospel, is much more purposeful in writing about Jesus' life. So what's the significance of this miracle? Number four, joy. Jesus has come to offer joy. Abundant joy. The first miracle that Jesus performs was not a matter of life and death. It was not that this person's been sick their entire life and he miraculously heals them. It's not that this person's been blind or that there is a raging sea or that there are thousands of people over here that are famished or that there is one that is dead and he is raising to life. Rather, the first miracle is that there is this occasion lack the joy because they ran out of wine. And he has looked to establish with abundance some joy to that festival. Do you remember there was 150 gallons approximately of this wine made? Now, I'm from this area. Many of you are as well. And so I grew up. In fact, when I was in college, I was at a house. It wasn't a Christian school. It was a party house. And it wasn't unusual on a Thursday night to us to get these Dixie cups. And we would rent or get a half barrel of beer. And for $3, you could fill that up and drink as much as you want. And do you know how much beer is in a half barrel? Fifteen and a half gallons. That's a lot. But at this festival... About ten times that was provided. He not only met the need, but he went beyond that. Wine in the Bible symbolized joy. Let me read to you a few verses. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. It says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to the gladdened heart of man. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, Come, everyone who thirsts, 
Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor which will not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. We, we would see this on celebrations that wine would be provided. And so in this passage, I think what we have is some symbolism. Is that the Old Testament system cannot deliver the joy, the abundant joy that Jesus is ushering in as he launches his ministry. Maybe a word a little bit about wine at this point. Uh, likely I'd be asked that. Now some would say, well, let's, let's get into the conversation about how much alcohol was in this wine. And, and I'm just going to, I'm not even going to go down that path. My, my personal belief, I think that we would all agree that the Bible forbids getting drunk, and it's just not wise at all. My personal belief is that I will drink as much alcohol as I want, and I don't want any. I've grown up in families and have had good friends that I've seen fights break out during Thanksgiving. Uh, I've seen loved ones get angry. Uh, I've, I've watched arguments break out with my aunts and uncles. And uh, maybe one of the ways that I was prepared for parenting kids was I was the designated driver with my college friends. As I would bring them home and they would act like little children because they were drunk, I thought, why in the world would anyone ever want to do this? So I don't drink. I have no desire to drink. And I'm realizing that there will be others that take a different point of view. In fact, in July, our family went to a wedding. It was a great Bible-preaching church here in our area. I believe the, this ceremony was Christ-exalting. And after the wedding, we went over to the reception, and there was coolers over here of Coke and Dr. Pepper. And right next to there was a cooler of all sorts of beer and alcohol. I said, boys, help yourself to the right cooler, right? And the boy said, Dad, how, how shall we think about things like this? And I said, there are areas that Christians differ here. And what Jesus said is that what, what comes into a person does not defile them, but the words that come out of their mouth, that defiles that person. Now, we ought not to look down at these people and see them differently. We just see this, this topic as different. And I realize as a church, I think over the years, we've probably been seen as maybe a little legalistic in this, but we've just had a standard of saying, our leaders, let's just abstain from alcohol. Let's not even, let's not even go down that path. And if that means that we get labeled something, that's okay with me. Because we, we want, we just want to not even go down that path at all. So there, on one hand, uh, wine symbolized joy. But you're, you're Bible students. You know that that's not the only thing that is symbolized with wine. In fact, last Sunday, 
we participated in the Lord's Supper. That wine, and may I say the path to joy, is through the shed blood of Jesus. This joy is offered through Jesus' death. Wine not only symbolized joy, but it also the blood of a sacrifice, the Lord's Supper. Jesus said on the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So you have the observations, you have the explanations. Now let me just give you quickly the application. And here it is. Do you know Jesus and this abundant joy that he provides? How is it that one could experience this joy? He come to provide joy. I, I think as we look through the scriptures, we see some patterns. Joy, blessedness comes when our sins are forgiven and we confess our sins. Are you in an ongoing relationship with Jesus where you're confessing your sins? In the Bible study I was in this morning, the teacher spoke about having a clear conscience before the Lord. A clear conscience, I believe, is a pathway to joy in your relationship with God. Walking in freedom from your sins. Are there patterns of pet sins that you are allowing in your life? If so, I think that's going to kill your joy. Well, when you say, I've got, I got some struggles here and I need other people to help me because I want to walk in freedom here, there's a possibility for you to experience this abundance of joy. Are you resting in His mercy and grace? Or are you relying on your feelings? Uh, your hand today, but how many of us fell? How many of us know that we committed sin this week? I believe all of our hands would go up. But the joy is in asking for forgiveness and receiving forgiveness and and pushing through the feelings of when we don't feel forgiven. I'll tell you another thing that can rob our joy is when we rely on our circumstances rather than the Word of God and what God says. Are you trusting in his word? Not just reading it, but is it reading you? And are you in the scriptures? Have you forgiven others of their offenses towards you? And are you sharing his word? I can think of a story many years ago. Before we were married, my wife was confiding. and We were just dating. And she says, you know, I'm going through a period of time right now where I just lack joy. I'm just going through the blahs. And she said, I I talked to my dad, and he said, hey, when's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? That might be what's keeping you from joy. And she got real serious about that. She shared the gospel a few times, and she came back overflowing with joy because she was carrying out what God had asked her to do. And then, are you all... Are you experiencing authentic relationships? I didn't ask you, did you attend Bible study today? I didn't ask you, did you attend Bible or a small group sometime this week? But rather, are you in some quality relationships where people know you and you know one another? As I was asking myself that question this week, what is my source of joy? I found the word relationship to be right at the top of that list. My relationship with God, my relationship with my close uh, friends, my relationship with my wife, and my family. 
Here's where I'd like to end today is by this prayer that, that David offered in Psalm 51 where he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We've worked through these verses here in the first part of John 2 and we're confronted with joy. Jesus has come to bring an overwhelming joy, a joy that will knock your socks off. And just ask yourself right now, is that your life? I'll give you a really challenging homework assignment. I did this once. I once asked one of my boys, do you see joy in your father's life? And you know what he said? No. That was convicting. And that got me serious. And I would tell you that this is an ongoing fight, a pursuit of my life. Joy is not only a gift that God gives, a fruit of the Spirit, but joy is something that is to be cultivated in our life. So let's just take some time today, right now, as Miss Jean comes. And I'm hoping that this would not only be a time of prayer at the end of this sermon, but it would be something you would carry with you through this week. Uh, Just ask yourself those questions that are related to the application. Are you experiencing this joy? For some of you today, you're saying yes, and I rejoice with you. And during this prayer time, why don't you just thank God for the joy that you're experiencing? Some of you would say, yes, I am, but not to the degree that I would like. I'd love to experience more joy. Maybe you would spend your prayer time just praying for that right there. As you think of these questions, that is God leading you to answer them in a specific way? Others of you might say, I'm just being honest. I got no joy right now, and that's a problem. And, and I need God to do a work in my heart. You know, I was Friday night, I was sitting in a parking lot, and I was watching my boy at practice, and I was looking at John chapter 2, getting praying and thinking through, getting ready for this morning. And I was thinking of all the different things I had done that day. I had read the Bible, and, and I had preparing for this message, and it was as if the Lord was saying something to me. Okay, you've done all this stuff, but I mean, how much, of, how much do I really matter to you? How much have you really spent in your relationship with me today? And the answer to that was very convicting. I was like, what do you mean? I've done all this stuff. No, that's not what I'm asking. What about, what about, what about the priority that I'm going to have for you? And then maybe the last group of people today is have you ever, have you ever experienced this joy the, for the first time? Jesus has come that you would have joy through forgiveness of sins. As Miss Jean comes and plays, why don't we turn this into just a, a prayer meeting right now and you can respond as the Lord leads. Father, I thank you for this great passage that was just laid out for us today. Uh, Thank you for the miracle that we have observed. I think it's a picture of us bringing our dry, thirsty lives barren and being filled with sweetness, overflowing beyond beyond what we need, just expanding more and more because of your grace and your love for us. Today, may we, as we receive that, just live that out with joy and 
whether the circumstances are not of our choosing, whether our feelings do not always align with that, um, whether it's been a rough week, help us today to take the joy that's been provided for us and say, by faith, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand on that. Now, if there are things in our life that need to be confessed, conversations that need to be had, if there's things that need to be done, may we do that. And we, we thank you for this gift that has been given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.